1: History is replete with wars of religion, like the Crusades, and wars within a single religious tradition. Sunni versus Shiite in the Middle East, Catholic versus Protestant, and Reformation France or 20th century Ireland. But in America's civil war, a war was fought between two intensely religious societies that, as Lincoln observed, both read the same Bible and prayed to the same God. How did Americans use a book in which they shared a common belief to justify killing one another for four long years? That's one of many questions addressed by James P. Byrd, Associate Professor of American Religious History at the Vanderbilt Divinity School in his new book, A Holy Baptism of Fire and Blood, The Bible and the American Civil War. We'll talk with Professor Byrd tonight on Civil War Talk Radio.
0: Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com.
2: Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no
0: O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio.
1: And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Coming to you tonight, as has been the case for the last year now, from the Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters Annex on Oxford Road in Greenville, North Carolina, not too far from the Brewster Building. On the campus of East Carolina University, but not speaking for the university or for anybody else, just myself and my guest, of course, will do the same as happens every week. On the- Well, it is March of 2021, the first week of March, almost a year now since the pandemic has struck and been forced to vacate the Brewster Building, where the show normally comes from, uh, still there are some semblances of normalcy returning. Uh, East Carolina is playing baseball once again. They are uh, off to a good start this season, six and one, and they were winning tonight when this show started. But uh, the other team was rallying, so I had to turn it off and join you here. Still, I am wearing my East Carolina uh, honors program T-shirt and an ECU sweatshirt over that. You may picture me, uh, you know, dressed more nicely, but in fact. Since the pandemic has started, I have really worked hard to keep the the online wardrobe from declining too far uh, when teaching uh, in front of uh, students uh, uh, recording lectures that students will see, I, I make it a point to at least be decently uh, attired. But I don't wear a tie any longer while, for teaching online. I was one of the last in the department who wore a tie for teaching every day anyway. And I'm wondering, it's been now a year practically since I've worn neckwear. I'm, I'm wondering what will happen when we go back in the next semester, which hopefully we will. I'm scheduled to get my first vaccination shot tomorrow. I hope you have gotten yours or or getting yours soon. Uh, One other observation about being on campus, I did go there earlier this week to the library, which is open, socially distanced, but uh, available, which is nice. uh, For the purpose of picking out books for future shows for, for Civil War talk radio, I hadn't done this in a long time, but I used to regularly just walk down the aisles of Civil War books and look at the spines where the the uh, the code indicates uh, the, not just the catalog number but the year of publication. So if a book is recent uh, you can tell just from the spine if it's in the last year or two and I would go down and come away with an armful of books and then start contacting those authors if they hadn't contacted me. So I did this a couple days ago and I was just really surprised how few books there were dated in the last, say, five years, which is what I was looking for. And at first I I thought, this is terrible. Then it occurred to me a fair number of those books are in the collection, but they're electronic books. They're online. Uh, The book we'll be talking about tonight I have never held in my hands, but have been able to read online from ECU's library. Uh, So that partly accounts for how few there are. The other thing that struck me was how many of the books published in the last five years I would reach my hand out for and say, oh, 2018, that Civil War topic, let's see, and I would be halfway there and I'd say, oh, we did that one. Oh, we did that one. We did that one. So many of them that I began to wonder if the library book buyer, uh, a colleague uh, that I've worked with many times, listens to the show and just buys the books that we talk about here. Uh That may be the case, although it's also partly true that I'm responsible because when I'm getting ready to do a show and I don't have a copy of the book for some reason, or even if I do, I will look in the library catalog, and if they don't have it, often there's a purchase-on-demand option where faculty can request that the library buy a book. They do this more and more instead of buying the books and hoping we like them, they let us purchase on demand and use their budget that way. So even if I've got a copy of the book, I'll often purchase on demand this week's book so that the author gets another book sale, good for that person, and the library gets a copy of a valuable book, and uh, everybody wins. But the result is that the shelves of the last five years really echo what we've talked about on the show, and I only found a couple books that I hadn't already heard of. Uh, So that answers a question some people sometimes ask. How do you get books for the show? How do you decide? The other way, of course, is I buy them with the Civil War Talk Radio Book Fund, which you can contribute to by going to www.impedimentsofwar.org. That's where you can find out who's going to be on the show next. Uh, You'll see on March 10th next week, Leanna Keith will be our guest. She has a book called... When It Was Grand, A Radical Republican History of the Civil War, will bring old friend of the show, Brian Jordan, back on March 17th. His new book is A Thousand May Fall, Life, Death, and Survival in the Union Army. And then on the 24th of March, it's spring break. It's not really spring break. ECU does not have a spring break this year because of the pandemic. They don't want the students traveling to the beaches and picking up the virus and bringing it back and infecting everyone, which we know they would do. Uh, so we got a late start in January and are skipping right over spring break, which I can tell you, when you have a rhythm of seven weeks of intense work and then plan to take a deep breath and dive back for seven more, and that breath isn't there, it's, it's a little disconcerting. So I'm taking a, a spring break from Civil War Talk Radio on March 24th, even though we'll still be in class that day. No drinks with umbrellas in it for uh, any of us. We'll, we'll just uh, take one day off from the show. Uh, well, other guests coming up after that, William Marvel, John Madison, uh, James Oaks, and others are lined up. Uh, but go to the website. You can see who's coming in. You can donate to the show. And it's tax season. Don't declare donations on your tax, because it's not a charity, it's not a 501c3, you'll get in trouble. Uh, You don't want to get in trouble, you want to do what is right and good as the Bible tells us to do. The Bible tells us many things, uh, and it told many things to the Civil War generation, many of them contradicted by their behavior or by uh, the things that they said elsewhere. It's, it's, a, a, it's a story for which we need to consult someone who knows more than I do about it. And that person is Professor James Bird. He is uh, Associate Professor of American Religious History at the Vanderbilt Divinity School. And he has a new book, A Holy Baptism of Fire and Blood, The Bible and the American Civil War. Professor Bird, are you there? I am.
3: Thank you for having
1: me well welcome to the show um, we've been corresponding uh, I hope I can call you Jimmy you can call me Jerry we can, we can yeah. go faster that way um, I, I appreciate you coming
3: on the show my first question is do you wear a tie when you teach online I am really glad that you brought that up I, I was listening to you say that and I uh, I am probably one of the few last folks um, professors who wear a tie in my department mm-hmm. and uh and I've always done that, but during COVID, I don't know if I can still tie a double Windsor. I, I was actually <laughs> thinking about that two days ago. I seriously was. I was thinking, you know, I I should probably go in my closet and see if I can still do that. <laughs> and I haven't done it, so I, it, it's going to be some suspense. There'll be some suspense when I go back to to try to tie a tie. But I yeah, I was thinking the same thing. It it it's amazing how how far that has slipped away from us.
1: Uh, I I think the very first day online we, we tried to start face to face last August and we got about two weeks in the semester and clusters were breaking out everywhere so we, we stopped and my first thought was well I'll just keep dressing up like I do for class you know I no reason why we should back away from this mm-hmm. and uh, now it, it's just not possible uh, <laughs> right. uh, could couldn't couldn't manage so you uh, teach American religious history is the Civil War has that always been a part of your historical interest or what brings you to this particular
3: topic? It's always been a part of my historical interest. I I grew up in western North Carolina. I was born, raised in Rutherfordton, which is a mouthful, (laughs) Rutherfordton. It's uh, um, about halfway between Asheville and Charlotte. And um, obviously there's a lot of a revolutionary war uh, battlefields around there too. But uh, just growing up in Western North Carolina, I just, uh, I'd always read about the Civil War and been fascinated by the Civil War and the American Revolution, both. Um, so, yes, it's a long standing interest. Um, and uh, I was excited about the opportunity to, to get a chance to write something on it. So, this book is
1: one where I started looking at it and it, it occurs to me to ask who you envision as the audience for this book. And, and the reason I ask that is, uh, from the title of the book and from the introduction, one gets the impression it's a sort of standard academic monograph. You talk about different themes in your introduction uh, that you address in the book. And then the book itself is organized differently. It's organized chronologically, where you take the reader through the Civil War, you know, event by event in a way that's much more user-friendly for an audience that isn't steeped in the topic, mm-hmm. but it's not a traditional academic monograph that would be more thematic and more thesis-driven. Right. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so who, who are you looking to read this?
3: Yeah, I, I, I guess I'm looking at just uh, family back home, uh, folks mm-hmm. who are interested in the Bible, and folks who are also interested in American history. The previous book that I did also for Oxford was Sacred Scripture, sacred war, and it was on the Bible and the American Revolution, and that book was organized differently. it It was published in two thousand thirteen, and mm-hmm. and it was much more like an academic book. it It had uh, chapters based on different parts of the Bible. So there was like a a chapter on uh, Peter Paul and patriotism. There was a chapter on um, like uh, moses and and uh and there were chapters on the book of revelation things like that mm-hmm. um, so it was by theme and then i was talking to uh editor uh, at oxford that i worked with and he suggested that um Have you thought about writing this civil war project as more of a narrative and i I hadn't thought about that, but the more I thought about it, the more I liked it. And it, because we felt like it would just be more natural. I mean, uh, because you can talk more about the context in which um, these biblical texts are being cited. And it, it, it just, it just flowed that way. And so I was, um, I was glad I made that decision. It seems to have, uh, from what I've heard, uh, it seems to have caught on. And I think it's, it's more—it's more like history, you know. It's—it's it's, it's narrative based. So,
1: well, it—it it definitely does. You know, I'd say it tells a story and uh, brings the reader along. And I think it, it's more inviting for people uh, who don't necessarily know. When you mentioned, if you mentioned Second Battle of Manassas, let's say, mm-hmm. most of the people listening tonight go, "Oh yeah, you know, that was Pope and right. Longstreet coming to rescue Jackson and." Uh, they They know the context of it and when it happened and what its consequences were. but those of us listening tonight are are not a majority of the the reading public, mm-hmm. um, unfortunately. so uh, for people for for most readers with just a casual interest in the civil war, this is really going mm-hmm. to allow them to see what you're what you're getting at. Um, the topic of religion in the civil war has been. Fallow for a long time, it seems to me. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, you've got books. You know, Stephen Woodworth, Mark Mm -hmm. Noll, George Rabel come to mind. People have written good books about it, but not nearly as many as the topic, I think, would justify. Mm -hmm. But now suddenly, there's like a burst of them. Uh, Mm -hmm. Are you part of a movement? What What's happening? Why is it?
3: I hope so. Um, It's just there's just. I think there's more reflection these days on religion and, uh, and the history of, of religion and not just the, the history of the, uh, of the way ministers thought about things, but the way politicians thought about things uh, and people who didn't, didn't necessarily go to church all the time, talk, thought about things. So I do think, and and also the Bible um, as well for, for years and years um, it was a, matter of curiosity to me to notice that just very, very few people did the history of the Bible in America. Martin Owell obviously was a, a forerunner, a real trailblazer in this area, and there's are some who did, but think about it, the, the Bible was the book that was most read throughout American history, probably, and um, the book most owned, and and I think what we've had is a case where historians, modern historians, aren't as biblically knowledgeable as the people they're studying. So oftentimes, you know, they'll, they'll like do a book on, uh, on uh, the civil war or something on the revolution, and they don't recognize that how much of the Bible is really there because that's just not something they're thinking about. And, and obviously you can't think about everything as a historian. You have to focus on something. Um, but the folks at the time, um, really didn't know the Bible uh, very, very well. I mean, Abraham Lincoln knew the Bible as well as as any revival preacher, I think. Um, and so.
1: it, I, I think it's a very strong point, and, and that's certainly been true in Lincoln studies, uh, that, that religion was neglected for a long time, even though it was clearly central to Lincoln's worldview. Uh, we're going to take a short break. We'll come back, talk some more with our guest tonight. He is uh, James Byrd, author of and I have to scroll up because I don't have the paper book in front of me and make sure mm-hmm. I get the title right each time. Mm-hmm. A Holy mm-hmm. Baptism of Fire and Blood The Bible and the American Civil War. That's our topic tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk it gets those
0: synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com.
2: Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective, plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, Philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite hosts. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access, all the time.
0: Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. Listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to ProkopovichG at edu. That's P R O K O P O W I C Z G at ECU.edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio.
1: Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich talking tonight with James P. Byrd, author of A Holy Baptism of Fire and Blood, The Bible in the American Civil War. So, uh, Jimmy, the, the central question, one that I raised in the uh, introduction, let, let me just start there at the risk of asking the big question, then we'll have 30 minutes to talk about baseball. <laughs> um, great. The the <laughs> uh, the Bible is pretty clear. Uh, Thou shalt not kill Uh do unto others. Uh, how can anyone take texts in the Bible and make them in favor of human slavery uh, or fighting a war? So pick either of those and, and, and uh, break, break this down. How, how, how did people in the 1860s specifically, maybe we start with the, the, the first half uh, pro slavery, what in the Bible supports uh, slavery?
3: Yeah, let's let's talk about them. um, It's interesting. The slavery we'll we'll talk about first. I mean, there's a lot of slavery in the Bible. Um, There's slavery in the Hebrew scriptures, you know, the Old Testament. Uh, There's slavery in the New Testament. Um, The uh, Paul talks about slavery and never once says uh, slavery is evil. Never once says. everyone should have uh, no longer have any enslaved people um, so the way people were reading the bible at the time and at the time most people were reading the bible according to basically common sense realist uh, reading basically reading it rather literally not that they took everything literally obviously they like if they saw something poetic in the psalms they understood it poetically they understood analogies they uh, but Overall, if something sounded historical, it was historical uh, in the mid-19th century, and, and it today for a lot of people who read the Bible. So what do you do then when you have slavery in the Bible in both Testaments and nowhere explicitly condemned? And so slavery is a, a difficult question. Uh, Martin Ole, who's done some work on this, uh, says that if you, if you accept the way a lot of people are reading the Bible, if you read it, Rather, literally, literally, you see a lot of slavery. But at the same time, the Bible says thing. You know, it has the golden rule in it. Uh, do <laughs> unto others as you would have them do unto you. And so, uh, Frederick Douglass um, and other abolitionists were pointing out, well, how you know, how could that support slavery? Who would want to be enslaved? So it's a an issue. It can. It's an issue of do you take the golden rule and other commandments and other. Uh, basically loving passages of the Bible where you're supposed to love thy neighbor and how then do you possibly justify something as cruel and inhumane as, as slavery? So you have competing texts uh, on slavery and it's, it becomes a very complicated question. It is before the war and, and the major Protestant denominations divide before the Civil War. The Baptists divide North and South. The Methodists divide North and South. Uh,
1: so you say so you make the point also that in terms of reading the Bible historically, that the people doing this are not uh, professional historians. They they tend to read right. things through the lens of the present. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's a widespread assumption among Southern uh, biblical uh, explainers mm-hmm. that slavery in the Bible was race based. Uh, but you mm-hmm. make the point that that's not the case.
3: Yes. Uh, and that's race is a whole other issue, um, mm-hmm. interesting, because race, uh, race, race-based race slavery becomes very difficult. Uh, slavery is one thing, but race-based slavery is another. Right. And, uh, and how do you make that argument based on the Bible? And they used various techniques to do it, those who are trying to defend slavery, and one of them is the curse of Ham. Uh, uh, the curse of Canaan uh, kind of uh, coming out of the Noah story, basically that there's these people that were cursed by God and then they became um, uh, an enslaved people and they became basically Africans later. Um, But that doesn't, it doesn't say in the text that these cursed people will be Africans or anything like that. So, there are different ways people uh, who are trying to defend slavery try to make the argument that it's race-based from the Bible, but they really can't – it's difficult to do that. But if they just argue for slavery, uh, they, have, they have at least more texts that talk about it. So
1: so the Bible gets widely used by people both attacking and defending slavery in the years leading yes. up to the war and then during the war. Uh, how do they view each other? Um, and, and and I'll say something that, that informed my reading of this whole book was the situation we live in today where increasingly uh, – I saw a recent poll asking people, do you view members of the other political party as political opponents or enemies? Mm-hmm. And increasingly, the number of people who see their – people on the other side as enemies is, is going up. Um, obviously, right. we know what happened in 1860 when both sides – Saw each other as enemies, and uh, seven hundred and fifty thousand young men died. Uh, but it, it seems like using the Bible means your opponent, if if they're if they're wrong, if the Bible's on your side, the other side's not just your opponent; they're they become your enemy.
3: That is such a critical point. Uh, I think it's it 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 makes it sacred. It raises the stakes. Um, it if it, it, it's if. It, if they're your opponent, they disagree with the Bible, and everybody assumes that sees the Bible as God's word, and they're doing something that's anti-Bible, then they're anti-God, and and so you're almost commanded to wage war against them. And they make those arguments, and they bring out biblical texts that that make arguments like that. Uh, and there are these militant texts in the Bible. The Bible is it's it's a war story uh, if you look at it. For, from a broad perspective, there's a lot of war in there. I mean, in the Hebrew Bible, there's a lot of war. Um, the Israelites going to war against different peoples uh, rather constantly. David versus Goliath. David, David's a war hero. Um, and even in the New Testament, while there are not military wars going on, the book of Revelation is very much like a war story. I mean, you have you know Jesus coming out on a white horse, defeating the enemies in Revelation, uh, Book of Revelation. So there is, and, and plus there's spiritual warfare, like in the, in the New Testament, It's there's a war, like in Romans, Paul talks about the war within all of us, the spiritual warfare, and that's also very prominent in, in the Civil War period and even before the Revolutionary period, people connecting the spiritual warfare they feel in their hearts, the good versus evil, is also something they see on the battlefields. It's all consistent.
1: I, I thought it was interesting how you showed that when the war breaks out in 1861, uh, there are people who are on both sides who are almost relieved uh, and and immediately begin reinterpreting or at least rephrasing their understanding of the Bible to say, uh, you know, enough of this this pacifism Mm-hmm. Uh, let, let's find these warlike parts and cite them, and and justify uh,
3: smiting our enemies. Exactly. Yeah, it's interesting. It's like the uh, the the mid nineteenth century, for the most part, it was more of a New Testament uh, quoting time for uh, for several reasons. And I mean, people ask me, you know, you did a book on the American Revolution, on the Bible and the American Revolution, and you've done one on the Civil War. How do they compare? And one of the comparisons is there was more Old Testament citing, comparatively speaking, in, in the revolutionary period. Um, and people pointed to that. Say, well, there was a lot more revivalism going on. There were more evangelicals in the 19th century. People were using the New Testament more to talk about slavery, that kind of thing. But um, at the same time, they have absolutely call on the Old Testament, often when they need to wage war, when they need to make a really strong claim for war, so and and they'll even comment on it. They'll say things like, "You know, we'd we kind of relegated," and this the Christian saying this obviously. That <laughs> we'd kind of relegated the Old Testament um, to kind of the past, but now we're finding it more and more relevant <laughs> because of because of these the age we're in.
1: It, mentioning Christians, Protestant. Evangelical Christianity was the religion of of the majority, certainly of religious Americans mm-hmm. uh, by 1860. In terms of numbers, what are what are we looking at? How how uh, prevalent is is church going and Bible reading?
3: Yeah, uh, I've looked at some statistics on this, and by 1860. Um, of the best way, I mean, it's really hard to count membership statistics in churches. I got to tell you, membership statistics don't tell us much now. They didn't tell us a whole lot then. I mean, you go to your average church and say, how many people, how many members do you have? And then look at how many people are in there on Sunday morning. And it's not always the same. It's not always the same people. You got people on the rolls sometimes that have been there for, that hadn't been in the church in a while. And it it was always kind of iffy. Uh, Martin Ole has counted this up and he's counted buildings and buildings give us a sense of of where things stand. Um, And he counted out about 50,000 Protestant churches in 1860 uh, compared to about almost just short of 80, maybe about 77 synagogues or temples and about 2,500 Catholic churches. So that's Protestantism was just huge uh, more so than, than it is now by a long shot. Uh, and so that, that gives us a sense of most people were reading the King James Bible, um, and they were uh, they were very biblically oriented. I mean, they were, uh, um, and they had uh, prejudice, ag- prejudice against uh, Catholics because they didn't feel like they read the Bible enough and that kind of thing. So.
1: Now, you mentioned that in, in the book you talk about how Catholics saw the outbreak of the war, particularly Irish Catholics who are, out of favor with the mainstream because they're Catholic and because they're Irish, mm-hmm. uh, and they they see the war as an opportunity to prove uh, not just their patriotism, I suppose, but their their uh, religious uh, what what's the right word their 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 virtue. Yeah, uh, sure so so the, the war is so your discir- your your book is not limited just to the protestant experience you do talk about the catholic
3: response to this could you say more about mm-hmm. that yeah there there were some catholics who did see the war as uh, an opportunity i'm not trying to say they were opportunistic i mean i think they were no. sincere in what they were doing mm-hmm. but they did see the war as a a way to demonstrate their patriotism uh, and and in some ways combat the nativism that they were facing by the Protestant majority, and so there were Catholics who who did embrace the war, um, and I mean, and there were Catholics who didn't, obviously, and there were Protestants who didn't, uh, but but there were those who did see it that way and uh, and 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 saw it as that it, this is an American thing to do. A moment ago, you you.
1: Made a point about understanding the Bible uh, in literal terms. He said, "Not, not every word is literally taken." But I, I'm curious about the degree of literalism. Uh, that this is an era when you know, Darwin has just published, and the, the the real schism between literal and and metaphorical understandings isn't hasn't taken hold. But you, you point out that many people in the North cite. Uh, The the quotation that all people are of one blood, Mm -hmm. uh, as an anti-slavery argument, and do they mean that? Do they read that literally? Uh, How? how, how, Where does literalism fall on the scale then, compared to uh, today? Let's say
3: much more literalism. At the time, as you point out, Darwin uh, was out. Most people haven't read Darwin. Um, uh, and hadn't talked about, hadn't thought about evolutionary theories at this point. It's the same way with German higher criticism, higher criticism of the Bible. It was out by then. Most average people hadn't read much about it, hadn't heard much about it. Um, but it is the case that the slavery—I mean, the Bible starts to lose authority for a, for a lot of Americans after the Civil War because of Darwin because of the rise of German higher criticism and debates over the Bible. Um, But uh, as some historians point out, especially Brooks Holofield, who taught at Emory, pointed out that it was the debate over slavery that set the stage for Darwin, for higher criticism. In other words, the the Bible already had a chink in its armor. It, It already had been somewhat weakened in the minds of some people because of the slavery issue And then they get these other issues that start to come and even more cast some doubt on the Bible for some people, not for everyone, obviously, but for some people. That slavery debate was kind of the first, one of the first major debates where people recognized, you know what? Uh, I mean, when Lincoln said both sides read the same Bible and pray the same God, Mm -hmm. he was stating fact. But it was all there was also a bit of irony there. He was recognizing, you know Everybody just assumed that if we all read the same Bible and prayed the same God, we'd all get along. But we're realizing that's not the case, that the Bible doesn't say the same things to, to people from different backgrounds, different biases, different perspectives. And that was what the issue comes, comes to be.
1: Lincoln, I think, is, is marvelously passive-aggressive in that, uh, <laughs> yes. that bit where he, he says both you know looked for... Uh, God to be on their side, in essence. And then he says, of course, that, that one side should, you know, how they could ask a just God to help them, uh, you yeah. know, wring their bread from the sweat of other men's faces. Right. Uh, then he goes like, but I'm not saying, I'm just saying, you
3: know. <laughs> but then he <of> quotes <laughs> another scripture, judge not that, we be, that you being not judged.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. Like, Oh, far be it from me to judge anyone, yeah. but you guys are Horrible, yeah, yeah. Uh, it, 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 But Lincoln could do that because he he, of course, knew those quotations, and he knew his audience knew those quotations, yes, and, and he did. knew where those words were coming from and what they meant. Um, we're going to take another short break in just a minute. I want to, when we come back, I want to ask about um, the question of providentialism in the Civil War. It's it's a topic that comes up in a number of your chapters, different contexts, and. Uh, I found it one of the most interesting things. Uh, Did people see themselves as having free will? Uh, Did God ordain everything? And and how do people respond in such a world? So those are questions we'll ask when we come back in just a moment. We're talking tonight with James Byrd. He is the author of A Holy Baptism of Fire and Blood, The Bible, and the American Civil War. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio.
0: streaming live the leader in internet talk radio VoiceAmerica.com. we're making it easier to listen to the voice america talk radio network wherever you go in addition to listening live you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts discover new talk show personalities add shows to your list of favorites and listen to all of our show archives on demand all from your ios amazon kindle or android device download it from the apple app store amazon or google play and get ready to tune in the voice america mobile app powered by aircast that's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio.
1: And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with James Byrd, author of Holy Baptism of Fire and Blood, the Bible, and the American Civil War. We've been talking about how, as Lincoln said, both sides read the same Bible, uh, but they read it very differently. They chose different passages from it. They understood them differently. Uh, Jimmy, we left off with the the topic of providentialism, which uh, I I recall talking once to a colleague who teaches at a uh, a fundamentalist Christian uh, school Teaches Civil War history, and I said, What do you do if a student writes, you know, you ask a question to explain the, you know, what were the main causes of the war for an essay, and they write, Well, God willed it, and turn their paper in. You know, do they get an A? <laughs> um, and and he, he had a good explanation. I don't, I, but let me ask, uh, how did people understand? Uh, is that a sufficient answer? God willed it, and, and one accepts everything? Did they? Did free will enter into it? How how did they read the events of their time?
3: Uh, yeah, I mean, providentialism is incredibly uh, important to them because so many on both sides were absolutely convinced that all that was happening was somehow part of God's plan, and they very few people actually outright said there's no. There's no plan in this. God is not in this. But they had to try to figure out how to wrap their heads around the fact that this plan is not going like any of us would possibly <laughs> see it going if there's a just and and merciful God. Um, so exactly how is it part of God's plan? So it was a challenge to faiths on both sides, um, and they had to try to figure out how that worked. And and it was uh, – for for some – Going to battle, I mean, um, uh, James McPherson, who's uh, done a lot of work on uh, soldiers and their mentalities, of course, in the Civil War, talking about how uh, there was a sense that they uh, they had that providentialism was a uh, um, was a comfort, you know that uh, whether you know God it's in God's hands, what happens to me. Uh, it does, I'm going to die when it's my turn to die and it, and, and there's nothing I can do about it. So it almost gets into kind of a fatalism, but God's in control of it. Um, and, and, and then there was this providentialism that, that basically said, uh, we're on God's side. And so if bad things are happening, bad things happened in the Bible to God's people. When God's people went astray, when they sinned in ancient Israel, bad things happened to them. Uh, but God only chastises those whom God loves, right? So God's chastising us, but only because God cares and God's going to bring us back in the end. And that was just everywhere. People talked about that constantly. Now, you mentioned free will.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, they They did not see a contradiction between providentialism and free will for the most part. And even Calvinists who believed in predestination and a strong idea of predestination, I mean, even if you go back to Jonathan Edwards, Jonathan Edwards in the 18th century, who was a definitely a Calvinist for sure, yeah. uh, in his ideas of predestination, he believed that, he didn't believe people were machines. He believed that he wrote a, a, a treatise on freedom of the will in which he talked about how uh, we're, you know, we're actively involved in the decisions we're making. Even if they're predestined, that doesn't mean we're not doing them, and they're, we're not fully cognizant of what we're doing. It's just that all happens behind the scenes. I mean, I know that's a higher up, a providential kind of thing. So yeah, but another question that comes up in this, I mean, if it's all in God's hands, and it's all going to work out the way God wants it to, what's our role in it? And so you had preachers who would preach these sermons where they'd say, well, you know, believe in providence, but keep your keep your powder dry. In other words, don't <laughs> depend on God to do everything. I mean, you still need to drill. You need, you still need to uh, to be ready to fight, because God, God, God works with those who who work. Now, another theme that comes up
1: uh, in this book is the place of the nation—not just any nation, but uh, the United States, which mm-hmm. has. Uh, you know a, a history of exceptionalism, uh, a mission of being a city on a hill right uh, so so in Americans even today'll we'll talk in terms of being different from all other nations. was that prevalent in the Civil War era
3: yeah, very much so uh, and and probably gained uh, even more prevalence uh, during the Civil War era because of the civil war um, mm-hmm. the uh, historians talk, you know, a lot about civil religion in this context and civil war context. That it, this is when a lot of the ideas of civil religion came to the forefront. And of course, you know, you hear historians talk about, you know, before the civil war, people talk about the United States um, are a great nation, and after the civil war, they talk about the United States is a great nation. And part of that is um, the 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 civil war. Uh, redeems the nation um, and plants it on a divine footing like never before. But the providentialism that you're talking about, you're right. It, I mean, it had been around long before the Civil War. It was certainly present in the revolution. Mm-hmm. And, um, and just this idea, this is a special nation. This is a chosen people. Now, they argued over, well, are we the new Israel? Uh, or are we a different people? Are we equated with Israel? Are we something else? But definitely the sense that that God is doing something special in the United States, and that's and that's one of the reasons it becomes such a a critical issue during this during the Civil War, because everybody's still talking about the American Revolution, and they're seeing this as the mm-hmm. second American Revolution, and and trying to come to terms with that. Um, so the idea of being a new
1: Israel, I. Was really struck by your your citation of uh, one southern preacher who gave a sermon that the South was the new Egypt, yes, uh, and he didn't mean that as a bad thing somehow. Mm-hmm. That that was a curious uh,
3: sermon, I thought. Yeah, um, yeah. the The idea uh, that the, that the South, I mean, this is just another way in which the Exodus story um, is. Uh, is just everywhere, um, and 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 the Exodus story is just one of those things that uh, that's just taken in several different ways. Uh, this is from the Revolutionary War on, um, and it's brought. I mean, in in the Egypt, the e- Egypt language. I mean, both sides characterize the other as the Egypt, um, and and that the Egypt and Egypt is oftentimes depicted as evil. Um, but at the same time, uh, you can look at it this way: uh, when you're talking about slavery, and this is from I think this was probably uh, Stephen Elliott from. Uh, That's the one I was yeah. thinking of. Yeah, yeah, I, I think he said something about how uh, Egypt was a land of refuge for the people of Israel. Thinking of so, he's trying to make the argument: if slavery is evil how why did uh and this is a very confederate based argument here uh, but it's like he's trying to spin it to say that well if slavery is zebra how come uh, God allowed the Israelites to ever be enslaved um, and and sees that Egypt actually during that time um, they were able to uh, it was not always bad that they were in, enslaved at that time so you can see the ways people strain yeah. some biblical text to try to justify, justify now, things
1: the The book does not focus on the African American uh, reading of the Bible but it it doesn't overlook it either um, mm-hmm. certainly uh, there, there's a substantial uh, proportion of the African American population including the enslaved population that is uh, if not reading the bible at least hearing it and
3: familiar with mm-hmm. it mm-hmm. right how, how do they fit into the story absolutely uh, and it's and it's critical because the african american reading of the bible is such a a a completely from the other perspective reading that challenges the standard white common sense reading of the scriptures so uh, when you have someone like Fred, Frederick Douglass, who's quoting the Bible quite a lot, mm-hmm. um, and then you have before the war you have people like you know David Walker, uh, Mariah Stewart, um, then you have uh, you know uh, poetry coming uh, from African Americans. So you have a lot of perspectives on the Bible from African Americans, and that's just there's just to name a few, and it's. Taking the Exodus story, which uh, people talked about a lot, you know, seeing that the, the United States is not God's new, new Israel. It's God's new Exodus. Uh, it's an enslaving nation. Uh, and other texts as well. Uh, the Golden Rule, this uh, Acts uh, 1726, God is made of one blood, all, all people, all nations, which is used to refer back to the Adam and Eve story, you know, the Genesis story. Where everyone came from the same family, and if everyone's from the same family, then how do you justify white supremacy? How do you justify enslaving one race enslaving the other race? So uh, all these, all a lot of these texts are coming out, and quite often, interestingly enough, uh, texts like uh, Acts seventeen twenty six, talking about all, uh, all from one blood are all nations. That often gets associated with things like the Declaration of Independence, where Jefferson says all men are created equal, mm-hmm. uh, to argue against slavery and racism. So there are a lot of texts that have, a, have various meanings through this period.
1: One of the interesting things that you do in this book is you, you have a, uh, an appendix with a database, uh, based on a database, where you collected examples of, of biblical Citations, and the one you just cited, uh, that, that of one blood, is the number one uh, biblical quotation that appears in northern mm-hmm. sources. Whereas the uh, the southern one is from Job, uh, the Lord giving and taking away. Um, mm-hmm. Did what? What did you draw from your your research? Where you when you saw those the the different uses of of quotations in different quantities?
3: Yeah, I mean, it It was it was revealing to me. And this is the kind of thing that I did with the Revolutionary War book. I Before I wrote the book, um, and as I was doing the research, I tried to gather as much data as I could about how the Bible was being used to just kind of get a big picture view, right, of what were the big texts overall. And obviously knowing I can't possibly uncover every single biblical text, but going through as many thousand biblical texts as I could, in this book, I made use of new technologies, machine learning. There's uh, a field of digital humanities. A historian named Lincoln Mullen was absolutely pivotal to this, helping me to uh, work with the technology to uncover this. But I found things like, yeah, I mean, um, if I looked at the top sources from the Confederacy from this, uh, during the Civil War, there were a lot of sources about uh, uh, consolation. After great loss. And of course, the South was obviously just devastated. And so like, yeah, the number one is uh, from Job. I mean, could anybody more relate? Um, Naked I came out of my mother's womb. Naked I shall return. The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. And then Matthew 25, well done, good and faithful servant. You, You know, that was constant. And then things like Romans. We know all things work together for good that them that love God. And then on the the uh, union side, you had you know Act Seventeen, you know Twenty Six that we talked about, and of <laughs> course um, Romans Thirteen was was right up there among others, which was so important. Romans Thirteen is incredibly important throughout American history, where uh, it says, "Whoever resists is the power or resists the ordinance of God," and basically anybody who rebels against a king or any kind of civil ruler or is a rebelling against God. And God is a revenger uh, to those who, uh, who uh, are disobedient and God doesn't bear the sword in vain. All this is out of Romans chapter 13 and more. Mm-hmm. And that was incredibly powerful in the North uh, for the union. And, and as also uh, at the top of your list or near it are, are
1: texts about uh, the day of Jubilee and sure. letting the oppressed go free, which clearly, not surprisingly, don't show up on the southern side very much. Um, right. We are unfortunately out of time. Uh, th- th- this book was very interesting. And, and I think I said at the beginning, we're seeing a, uh, a outburst of scholarship on this topic. And I think it's long overdue. Uh, so, listeners, if you have interest in how people of a different century understood their world, and especially how the Bible colored that worldview. Uh, this book will help illuminate that. Uh, Jimmy, I wish we had more time to talk about it, but we, we're done for the night. But I want to thank you very much for being thank on the so show. Thank you so much. It was and, my pleasure. A Wonderful time. Thank you. <laughs> well, thank you. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio.